how did we get here to the point where as a society we can't even agree on what it means to be male and female. Hi, I'm Peyton Luke and this is First Liberty Live. First Liberty Institute recently brought together leaders from across the nation to discuss religious liberty. Stuart was able to grab a few interviews with some of the individuals that we thought you would want to hear from. First up is an expert on religious liberty that recently wrote a book on how the culture got to where we are today. Dr. Carl Truman is a Presbyterian minister. He's an author and professor. He's taught at Westminster Theological Seminary and Grove City College, University of Aberdeen, and the University of Nottingham. And he recently published a book that hits on something very important, and that's why I wanted to talk to him today. Hi, Carl. Good to be here. Good to I'm, I'm going to read the title of your book. Now, it's got a short title, a long title. I'll read the whole thing. It's Strange New World, How Thinkers and Activists Redefined Identity and Sparked the Sexual Revolution. It's a lengthy book, and it's a thoughtful book, and it's, it's unfair to ask you to summarize it in just a couple of minutes, but I'm going to do it anyway. Okay. <laughs> because it, it hits at the key question, which is yeah. how in the world did our culture go through this rapid, radical change that we've seen just over the last year and a half even? Yeah. Yeah, it's a good question, and I think one of the things that a lot of people, particularly conservative Christians, conservative religious people, have been confused and disturbed by is the apparent speed at which uh, the sexual revolution and the transformation of identity seems to have occurred. It, 2015 was the, uh, the Obergefell v. Hodges case on gay marriage in the United States, and that seems almost an eternity yeah. ago, considering the rise of transgenderism and everything that has happened in its wake. So I think the answer to, to the reason of how it's happened is, one, we need to realize that although it has presented itself as a very rapid change, the underlying causes have been developing, shaping the way we think for, for many centuries now. And essentially, I think, uh, two things we might say have, uh, have really driven uh, what's happened over recent years. One, the emphasis we've had in the West upon the fact that we are constituted by our feelings, yeah. by our inner desires, by what we feel inside, rather than any more stable connection to the exterior, external world. It's been going on for a long time. That goes right the way back to the, the 17th, 18th century. So we see a, a stream of, of way of thinking about ourselves that emphasizes that inner space. Secondly, that inner space really for the last 50, 60, 70 years has been regarded as a, a very sexual space. What do I mean by that? I mean that we have increasingly come uh, since the 1950s to think of ourselves think of our identity as deeply rooted in the sexual feelings, the sexual desires we have. And that marks a fundamental shift in Western culture. Uh, if you were to go back, say, to biblical times, uh, ancient Greece, even medieval period, uh, sex was something people did. The last 50, 60, 70 years, sex has become something we are. So the 13-year-old boy goes to his parents and says, Mum and Dad, I think I'm gay is not necessarily making any statement about a sexual experience he's had. He's talking about a desire that he feels. And yet it makes sense to us. And it makes sense to us precisely because we have been trained, cultivated by the culture in which we find ourselves, to think of our desires, and particularly our sexual desires, as definitive of who we actually are. 
You also make a distinction, which I think is interesting, and, and I don't fully understand it, so I was looking forward to the chance to ask about it. And that is, the used to, we talked about the person, but now we talk about the self. Yeah. Help us understand what, what that transition means, what that change in thinking means. Yeah, when we, when we typically think about, that, about personhood, I mean, go back to, to the Middle Ages. If I would say to you, who are you? You would, generally speaking, give me a, a series of statements about where you lived, where you grew up, uh, who your parents were, yeah. uh, the place you were tied to, the, the broader social network in which uh, you belonged. You wouldn't spend much time telling me about how you feel. You wouldn't spend much time in telling me about who you are on the inside. Yeah. Today, when we, we talk about what I say to students, you know, who are you? They might say to me, well, I'm a very spiritual person, or I'm an artistic person, or I'm a very sensitive person. If we notice the shift there, there's yeah. a shift from thinking about ourselves as social beings defined by our relationships to the external environment around us, and being, for want of a better term, psychological selves defined by that which is going on inside. And that connects to something that's very common in pop culture, and that's the saying, I have my truth and you have your truth, yeah. which on the one hand is a way to avoid any discussion of any topic because you can't really have a conversation after yeah. that. But on the other, it, it takes the individual self, as you've defined it, yeah. and makes that self in a sense God, right? Yeah, it does. And of course, it, it it's rooted in another one of the sort of byproducts of this psychological move, and that is that we tend to see human happiness and human fulfillment as feeling good. It's what gives me that inner sense of psychological contentment. When you think of happiness in those terms, uh, then truth inevitably morphs into something that is utilitarian and pragmatic. So when somebody says, I have my truth, you have yours, typically what they're saying is, I have my set of beliefs that make me feel good about the world and my place in it. You have your set of beliefs that make you feel good and about your place in the world. The fact that our views may not be compatible doesn't really matter because truth is found, if you like, in that inward experience rather than any kind of external objective reality. And that leads to an interesting conundrum, and that is we're being told all these things in the current culture that we must accept as true, yeah. but they have no foundation. There's no spiritual foundation. There's no scientific foundation. It's just declared to be so, and we're told we have to accept it. Yes, because the, the, the common good, if it exists at all at the moment, is most people feeling most happy most of the time. So whatever we have to tell people in order to get the most amount of psychological happiness in this world, that is the truth. It doesn't matter whether it has any external objective referent or not. Does it make you feel good? Final question, how do we return to a rational understanding of what it means to be a person created in God's image? That's a difficult question. Uh, I think at a national level or at the level of sort of macro level of the culture, it's pretty much impossible to do that now, uh, at least in the short term. Uh, I think we can do it locally. Uh, we can, in the individual lives we, we live, uh, demonstrate to people that actually it does matter what you believe. Actually, there are such things as objective truths. Actually, certain uh, lifestyle choices, certain ways of living do not lead even to, to physical and mental flourishing. So I think in the, in the, at the local level, uh, there are things we can do. You know, love, care for your own family and neighbors, I might say on that front. Long term, I think the task uh, for our generation is to think long term. 
Uh, I don't think uh, that you and I are going to see a major turnaround in our culture in our lifetimes. Maybe not even in the lifetimes of our children or our grandchildren. But I think the obligation that rests on our shoulders is this, and that is to work hard now to make sure that there is a legacy of thinking. Uh, there is a legacy of practical examples that future generations can build on so that when I think culture does collapse under the weight of this impractical and impossible psychological subjective vision, there's something there for future generations to build on as a foundation. There's a lot there to chew on. Thank you, Dr. Carl Truman. Thanks very much for having me. Stewart also caught up with a former First Liberty client who had been reprimanded for his faith. Stewart found out he's actually been reading Dr. Truman's book and it hit home for him because of what he has experienced. I'd like you to meet Colonel Leland Bohannon. He is a highly decorated officer with more than 20 years in the U.S. Air Force. He commanded a squadron in the Persian Gulf. He also flew the big jets. Uh, he flew the, uh, the C-5 Galaxy, which I love. Those things are so graceful in the air. The B-2 Spirit, which is the most awesome thing ever when you see it in a steep bank from the ground. I can't imagine what it's like to be inside it. And then, of course, the venerable B-52, the Stratofortress. He also, uh, he's retired in 2019. He's now a civilian with a, a firm that works with the Air Force. Is that the best way to say it? That's correct. Works yeah. alongside. So works alongside, advising, consulting. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, and, and he's also a first former First Liberty client. So, Colonel Bohannon, great to have you with us. Oh, Stuart, it's always good to be with you. Thank you very much. I want to start out with just the, the question. We often talk to you about the, the case that you were involved in. Sure. But rather than just go to the details of that, I want to ask you this. What was it like being a First Liberty client? and standing up for what you believe and also for your rights. What's that process like to go through that? Well, initially it's, uh, it's a little stressful, uh, a little scary when you find that uh, your right to freely exercise uh, your religious beliefs runs afoul of um, official uh, Air Force policy or really government policy. Uh, but it was good to have uh, Mike Berry and the team uh, at First Liberty come Mike alongside. Is really good. He, he is, and as a Marine Corps JAG, uh, he really knew military law very well. And that was extremely helpful uh, as well as you can imagine. Um, but to have them come alongside and uh, to offer counsel and uh, to really go to bat um, and, and kind of walk the walk uh, with me was was uh, was immense as a client what's it like to work with first liberty uh, the in and out of that does it does it make the process easier or harder what was your experience well i'm certainly not a lawyer and so those who are are much better at navigating uh some of the issues that are inherent to uh jurisprudence here in america and so having uh the team uh come alongside uh again is it's helpful to to be able to navigate some of the uh, some of the areas that just need that legal expertise. Yeah, you shared with me along the way, we're at a conference where leaders from all across the country are gathering together to talk about religious freedom. One of the things you shared with me was how you're becoming increasingly concerned with how the military is now catering to individual expression and particularly, uh, and expressions that run counter to God's view of what's right and wrong and particularly how that impacts someone who's in a command position. Explain to me the problems that that sets up when you're in a military setting. Sure, uh, well, as a commander, uh, I don't think that there's any place uh, really in maybe any other profession that I'm aware of where the personal beliefs of an individual have so much impact on the lives of others. 
And that is because, at least in a military organization, a commander, he or she, is responsible for the lives of those uh, under underneath them. And so when when you have to make decisions concerning life or death, obviously that, that has a, a significant impact. The, the importance, though, of that person's worldview, I think, then naturally flows out uh, because it's what guides their, it's what guides everyone's uh, decisions that they make. And so if a subordinate then, in an effort to express themselves, decides that they want to transition or they want to exercise the liberties that now are enshrined in law, uh, and yet that runs counter to the commander's personal beliefs such that they can't endorse that course of action. Right. Well, you're at an impasse. And that's where I found myself. My concern, though, is that as we go more and more down that road as a society, you're going to begin, you're going to, begin to see more of these conflicts arise if, indeed, uh, the Christian worldview doesn't move. If society in general normalizes, I'd say, more and more extreme behavior, different behavior, um, and yet God's position, because he doesn't change, then his people don't change and their worldview doesn't change, then you're going to see a larger and larger difference between the two, which I think naturally leads to uh, probably some cultural conflict. And uh, I, was, I was a bit surprised that my, my case hadn't had a lot of precedence, but be that as it may, I think there may be many that follow. Yeah, and it's in the short version of your case, you were approached to sign a, it wasn't an official document, but it basically was uh, showing honor to the spouse of a person who was retiring. It happened to be a same-sex spouse, right. and you said, I just can't do that, but you found someone else who would who was even a higher rank, correct? No, absolutely, uh, absolutely correct. In fact, uh, the general officer over me um, offered to, to provide that as a solution to which I happily agreed. Not that we don't want to recognize a retiring individual or even those people who uh, were significant in his life and in, in that career, but language matters, words matter. And so when we describe someone as a spouse, husband or wife, uh, those, are, those are words that claim back to an institution that God has established and that man's not free to modify. Right. Uh, and as a result, I couldn't put my name to a document, uh, a customary document, a letter of appreciation, a certificate of appreciation uh, that would then consign me to endorsing uh, an, uh, you know, a relationship that I, I believe was ran counter to, to God's definition of marriage. When you take the challenges in that specific situation and think about it in the larger, because I imagine as you've been pondering this, you've been thinking about how do we solve this? Because you served at a pretty high level in the Air Force. What are some solutions that could be implemented? Do you have any? You know, I think officials uh, in the past throughout history have recused themselves when they run into a decision where uh, they can't perform for one reason or another, can't perform uh, those duties that are being asked of them. I think that that's a reasonable solution, at least in the near term. Ultimately, though, here's my concern. Yeah. My concern is that uh, there will one be day, one day, uh, be uh, maybe an unspoken litmus test. What I mean is, 
if we understand and know that a particular individual is eligible for command but has a certain predisposition or a belief or, or a system uh, that they adhere to, and we, we understand that that may provide conflict in the future, produce conflict in the future, will that person really still be legitimately cons considered for command? Right. And if we're going to excise those who are who hold orthodox understandings of marriage or gender or whatever the case may be, will they then no longer be eligible for command? And what does that mean for the future of our services? I, I, I don't think it would be favorable. You're going to be sharing on a panel here at this event. What do you hope people take away from what you have to share? What do you hope they remember? The importance of truth and the importance of adhering to the truth. Uh, I think when we begin to walk away from that, as a society, it will have implications on all the institutions, from uh, the legal institution and the, the courts, uh, to corporate America, to the academy, and to the military, and even to the church. Right? All these institutions, as Justice Thomas has said, they provide useful roles in our society. And we be, when we begin to undermine uh, the foundations upon which they stand, which have to be uh, regulated by truth. If we begin to walk away from that, where are we left? Well, we're left with preference and we're left with power. And those two combined will allow the 51% to determine what's right and what's wrong. And that's a dangerous place I to be. I think it's a dangerous place to be. And, uh, and it has implications for our national security. Uh, I, there's a soft spot in my heart for national security being a military <laughs> man. Um, and oftentimes we look at you know, those enemies, foreign and domestic, the foreign enemies of our Constitution are pretty easy to deal with. It's the domestic enemies that may be a little bit more difficult. Colonel Leland Bohannon, thank you for chatting with us. Good to see you again. Stuart, always good to be here. And thank you for your service. Yes, sir. If you'd like to keep up to date with what's happening to religious freedom in America, be sure to subscribe to First Liberty's weekly insider emails. It's quick, easy, and it's free. First Liberty is the last line of defense and your greatest hope for victory.